We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. We welcome Wendy Murphy, professor of sexual violence law at New England Law Boston, also an impact litigator who has worked in state and federal courts around the country. Her website, WendyMurphyLaw.com. Professor, welcome to the program. So good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, a couple of weeks ago, Harvey Weinstein's rape trial began in New York City. There are many charges that are at issue here, including a number of rape charges as well as uh, predatory sexual assault. We've seen a number of high-profile women who have testified so far in the trial, including actress Annabella Sciorra. Uh, It looks like the prosecution is getting ready to wind down in this case. One thing that has gotten a lot of attention is the fact that Weinstein has shown up for his trial walking with a walker, bent over, and very disheveled looking. This all stands in stark contrast to the six-foot, 300-pound, towering Hollywood titan that we were used to seeing in years past and actually has been the subject of much of the testimony of the various women who have testified against Weinstein. Do you think that this is a conscious decision by him and his trial team? And as a former sex crimes prosecutor, how how often do we see this type of thing happen? Yeah, good question. Um, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that uh, this is, at least in part, a performance, a theatrical performance on Weinstein's part orchestrated by his attorneys. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have some kind of medical condition, but, uh, you know, perhaps he scheduled a surgery or something to take place on the eve of trial to give him at least an argument that it was a legitimate use of of the walker. Um, But in my experience, Uh, I've seen a number of cases in my career where an otherwise healthy person shows up in a wheelchair or a walker um, or with a cane uh, on the day of trial or in front of the judge uh, for a particular hearing uh, just to create the appearance of frailty. And in particular in front of a jury, I think the, the strategic advantage to the defense is that it creates for them, this psychological image of a man who, number one, couldn't possibly be so violent and aggressive, so it's inconsistent with the sense that the jury will get from the evidence otherwise. But it's also a very powerful visual image of a man who um, feels sympathetic. And, and, you know, even when a jury feels strongly about the credibility of the victim's testimonies, uh, there's there's something about a sympathetic appearance uh, by a defendant that can sometimes translate into uh, a, a reduction either in either in the charges or in guilt, and you know the jury can calculate, if you will, differently based on the sense that that they feel bad for the guy. We saw this with Michael Jackson. Uh, I think if you remember the trial out in Santa Maria, California, one day he came to court in pajamas and he was kind of shuffling along. And there's no doubt in my mind that that was designed to create the appearance, not necessarily the truthful 
uh, appearance, but create the appearance that he, even if he's guilty, um, it's because he's uh, he has problems and, you know, he's mentally ill, maybe, uh, but not evil. Then all of that works to the advantage of perpetrators. Now, having said all that, there is no doubt in my mind that especially in a sophisticated town like Manhattan, a sophisticated city, I should say, like Manhattan, New York, uh, you are very likely to provoke the opposite reaction among jurors. Yeah, Professor, let me people. let me jump let me jump on on that because I was going to ask you about that. So the the flip side to that strategy is that a jury is going to see right through it. I interestingly, I just in my practice had a bench trial a couple weeks ago, and in, in my brief, it was a it was a similar situation in that the plaintiff in my case came into court with a cane and a very deliberate limp. And that stood in direct contrast to some actual evidence, including videotape we had of this person. So in my brief to the judge, I pointed out very, very aggressively how I thought this person was lying. And I minced no words. So don't you think a jury and the jury is not sequestered as far as I know. So presumably, even though they're admonished to not follow media, they're aware of the media's take on this issue. Presumably, the jurors are going to be savvy enough to understand that this is all a show that Harvey Weinstein, I mean, he's a public enough figure that I'm sure a lot of the jurors have seen him before. And this guy was all over Hollywood, right? He was at every award show. Um, and the very nature of his presence was very domineering. And especially in light of the plaintiff's allegations that he physically overwhelmed them. We heard very dramatic testimony that he literally pinned you know, women down on a bed and rape them. Isn't there a real danger for jurors to be disgusted by this, um, you know, legal strategy? Absolutely. And, and that's exactly what I was going to say is uh, in a sophisticated um, environment where the jurors are coming from, uh, you know, Manhattan, where they <laughs> they're going to be suspicious anyway, they're just a a different type of jury pool than you might get somewhere else in the middle of the country. Um, they're going to be suspicious anyway, and they're going to look at this guy, someone who has been in the press when they were allowed to look at the media. You know, assume they're going to they're going to obey the judge and not look at it now. But they're going to remember that even when he was arrested, he was a towering presence, and that this is such a different appearance um, that if they feel he's taking it at all, and I have no doubt that at least some of them will wonder about that, that could turn against him and they could come back with a vengeance and not only not feel sympathetic, but feel kind of an extra compulsion to vote guilty simply because they don't like being manipulated. I think there's a real risk of that happening here. The interesting thing about uh, creating this appearance of frailty, I think, also goes to the issue of force. On the rape charge in particular, you know, the element of force has to be established and uh, one of the arguments the prosecution will make is that the relative size of the parties creates an implication of force, irrespective of what he did physically. I mean, even you know, even if he weren't pinning them down uh, per se or using violence, you could argue uh, that just because he was so big compared to the victim, that his presence alone is is relevant on the question of force and could be considered by the jury. So I think there is a very sort of basic reason the defense is trying to present him as frail. I just think there's absolutely no hope it's going to work. So I have a quick question just to follow up on something you just said. So we know that we've got most likely a, a relatively sophisticated jury here. What happens 
when you're a prosecutor and you're trying a case like this and you've got a defendant who is doing the same type of thing that is happening in this case with, you know, creating the appearance of frailty, how do you as a prosecutor um, deal with this situation if you have concerns about how the jury is going to interpret this and, and potentially rule? How do you uh, effectively combat this type of um, optics um, as a prosecutor if, if you have concerns about um, how the jury is going to rule? Yeah, really good question. And I think it's a tough one for prosecutors because they can't say to the jury, don't believe a bit of this nonsense. He's he's not a frail man, because, as I said, he you know, it's very possible that he scheduled uh, some kind of medical procedure to occur right before the trial for the purpose of legitimizing this appearance and preventing the prosecutor prosecutor from being able to argue that it's a big fraud. Uh, I just don't think his lawyers would be stupid enough to make it entirely fake. I just don't see that. But you have to be careful in the sense that you don't want to insult your jurors by pounding them over the head with the obvious. And I don't think you need to. I, I think it's possible that prosecutors can simply you know, sort of raise an eyebrow or be very glib about it and in, in that sense, respect the jurors' intelligence and sophistication and let them draw their own conclusions. Because to be, to be very bold about it, to say this is a, this is a fraud, I think, I think, number one, they could get in trouble if, in fact, there is some medical support for it. But also, um, you know, it denies the jurors the ability to go back and form their own opinion. And if the jurors want to go in and think this is a big uh, put-on, uh, let them let them do it. You know, if we all see it, they see it. So I wouldn't make too much of it. You have to be careful to respect jurors, even in a case like this where some things are obvious, uh, and not kind of shame them into into doing the obvious or seeing the obvious. You two probably have seen this with your own cases. Um, you know, sometimes I've had cases with juries where. I've wanted to say things like, don't be stupid. When you go in to deliberate, don't buy his crap. Uh, and you can't do that. You, you have to be careful not to offend the jurors, especially when something is as obvious as this. Let them be the heroes. Let them draw the inferences that you know they're going to draw anyway. Professor, we're out of time, but we want to have you back on. You're one of the foremost experts in the country on women's rights. Uh, your resume is stellar on that issue. and We want you to come back to discuss the state of the Equal Rights Amendment in light of the recent lawsuit filed by several state attorney generals. We've run out of time today, but will you please come back to discuss that issue on a future episode of Legal Faceoff? Absolutely. Would love to. Thanks a lot. She's been dubbed the best talker on TV with her finger on the pulse of women's rights. She is the founder and director of the Victim Advocacy and Research Group. She's all over media. That's Professor Wendy Murphy. Thanks so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you, too.